to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka here with Professor Akil Amar. Hello, Akil. Hey, Andy, and uh, we're going to see each other very soon. Right now, I'm uh, in Connecticut and you're in New Jersey, but soon we will be in the, the same location in the space-time continuum. Indeed. And the reason we'll be in the same location is because we're we're headed on a journey together down to Washington, D.C. for what I think it's going to be super exciting. And uh, I invite any of my any of our listeners to be jealous of me for uh, getting to, to go to the oral arguments in Moore versus United States, which, which will have taken place by the time our audience hears this podcast, because it's this Tuesday that the arguments are happening, and then we'll upload after that. And uh, in addition, we're going to, I hope, visit some uh, some luminaries, and uh, it's just, uh, just really exciting, and I have you to thank for it, Akil. Look, and by luminaries, we in part mean friends of the podcast. So with luck, we'll be able to pay a courtesy call to Justice Breyer, who has agreed to come on the podcast. With luck, we're going to have a meal with the great Nina Totenberg, who has agreed to come on the podcast. And with luck, we'll be able to pay a courtesy call on the great Bob Woodward, who has appeared on the podcast at least twice and will be appearing again. I can't you know, wait to hear stories about Henry Kissinger from Bob Woodward to hear stories about Sandra Day O'Connor from Nina Totenberg from Steve Breyer. And this episode is, is going to be connected to at least one of the things I just mentioned, because in recent days, we have seen the passing of two very, very important figures, icons, really, of modern America, uh, Henry Kissinger and Sandra Day O'Connor. You know, one of the things that we talk about on this podcast is uh, civil discourse and trying to hear from both sides. And I have to say that uh, the experience of, of doing these podcasts, just spending a lot of time with you thinking about some of these things, has, uh, I would say, opened my mind, you know, a little bit more, uh, or maybe a lot more. Um, I used to think of myself as open-minded, but... Um, uh, and one one example of that that doesn't actually have to do with you, Akil, has to do with uh, someone you just mentioned with Henry Kissinger. Um, you know, Dr. Kissinger passed this past week. And I think many of us growing up in the 60s and 70s, you know, may have uh, had a, uh, a negative view of, of uh, Secretary Kissinger. You know, you read these things today about, you know, what Anthony Bourdain said about him and and uh, Christopher Buckley and many, many critics that, uh, you know, had very, very profound criticisms of him, many hundreds of thousands of people dead in Bangladesh and Cambodia. And there may be great validity uh, to these things. I'm not going to address them, you know, on this podcast today. Um, my own experience with Dr. Kissinger is more personal. You know, we've talked about Everscholar, a sponsor of, of our podcast, and we're very grateful for that. And uh, and we've talked about the fact that you're going to be teaching in an Everscholar course in January together with Gordon Wood and Paul Grimstad down in Florida. Well, before it was Everscholar, it was Yale for Life. And Yale for Life was a program, as, as we've said, where people would come to campus, Yale alumni, and spend time in intensive study on campus doing maybe some of Yale's greatest hits or with some of Yale's greatest friends, either faculty or, and or guests. And one of them was the late Charles Hill, um, who had been beloved professor. Uh, one of his students wrote a biography of him 
uh, entitled The Man Upon Whom Nothing Was Lost. Man of great uh, insight and strong convictions, strong uh, leaning to, to the right, I would say, politically. And anyway, he had worked under Dr. Kissinger as a key aide for many years and close friend, co-author, ghostwriter, perhaps. And he arranged for Dr. Kissinger to come to teach a seminar at Yale for Life uh, twice uh, in a course that we called World Order and the Meaning of History, very modestly titled course. And you know, so I got to meet him and he was extremely generous with his time, with his uh, insights. We, we actually had a seminar with him the day after Britain voted um, to leave the European Union. So you can imagine, you know, sitting with Dr. Kissinger and getting his analysis the day after this vote. So, um, you know, I, w- I appreciate that aspect of him that he was very willing to teach. And because we, many of us kept an open mind, maybe because we were, you know, awed by the presence of the great man or whatever, um, I think that, uh, you know, we gained a lot. We were, we were open to learning a lot. And uh, so while you might not agree with him, it's certainly, he was certainly a notable figure. And I think there's a lesson there for, for being open to learning from people whom you may disagree with. Uh, you, you referred to him as Dr. And Secretary, Dr. Kissinger, Secretary Kissinger for you. I guess he was Professor Kissinger. I think he was once asked about um, his uh, preferred label, and he says, Excellency will do. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So uh, thank you for the opportunity to talk a little bit about, uh, about Henry Kissinger and Yale for Life and Ever Scholar. Okay. Well, but of course, here we are to talk about the Constitution and const- the constitutional ecosphere. And you know, yes, Dr. Kissinger passed, but another Titan uh, passed this past week, and that was the uh, the first woman to serve on the Supreme Court as a justice. That's uh, Associate Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. And I think, you know, of course, we want to pay tribute to her and her career, and I think we have something to offer here because, in many ways, your career um, is sort of wrapped wrapped up or wrapped around hers in some ways. So why don't you tell us a little bit about Justice O'Connor? Yes, this, this episode is all about the late, great Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. But since this is America's Constitution, I'm going to give you a Keel's uh, take on all of this. Andy, maybe we can title the episode, uh, Sandra and Akeel, a parenthesis, and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, close parenthesis, because I'm a bit player on the stage, but I do interact with Sandra Day O'Connor. So she's Hamlet. I'm uh, a Rose, uh, you know, Rosencrantz or Guildenstern. There's a, this is a great Tom Stoppard play, of course, re-narrating the events of Shakespeare's Hamlet through the eyes of these bit players. It's a brilliant literary conceit. Stoppard's a genius. So in this episode, I'm going to tell the story of Sandra Day O'Connor as best I can through uh, my own eyes. I am an historian, and I, in my books and uh, articles, t- tried to tell the story of Alexander Hamilton and George Washington and James Madison and Abraham Lincoln and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. But the young people in our audience should know that even though I'm ancient, truthfully, I never met any of them. Okay, um, I did not interact with them um, in this life, and I did. With Justice O'Connor, I met her late in life, but my story of Sandra O'Connor, my personal story, begins much earlier. Indeed, 
you mentioned that she, and, and this is historic and epic, she's the first woman on the Supreme Court. There's a great biography of her by my friend Evan Thomas. It's called First. I actually did two events with Evan about that biography, one at the New York Historical Society and one at Roosevelt House, which is curated by the great historian Harold Holzer. That's really where she achieves kind of, you know, iconic status. She arrives at the Supreme Court in September 1981, the very month that Akil arrives at Yale Law School to begin his legal education. So from a certain point of view, we kind of begin together and in law school as a student and then in law school as a young professor, I'm thinking quite a lot about the court's junior justice, who from the beginning is writing interesting opinions, sometimes in dissent, uh, sometimes in concurrence, sometimes in the majority and, and for the majority. So this is a story, this is an episode um, about my relationship with Justice O'Connor from the very beginning. She and I, she, she reaches the court just as I you know, reach law school. Just to clarify, you didn't know her at that point, so there was a certain I, certain parallelism here, or, or 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 at least there was an influence. Um, and of course, it starts off being somewhat one way that she's influencing you. Exactly. Because you know, at the at the beginning, I I don't know anything even about law, but I'm reading Supreme Court cases and thinking about the Constitution and thinking about how to connect the two. Let me t- take a step back. Let's, let's talk a little bit about her firstness. And then I think we've picked maybe 10 episodes or chapters of her life, opinions and ideas to sort of focus on in particular. But the first big thing is her firstness mm-hmm. on the court. This, in my view, in constitutional terms, needs to be understood as delayed but predictable product of the 19th Amendment. So why didn't we see it before? And we didn't see it before because at the founding, only men vote and and men vote for men. And it's not particularly politically advantageous to appeal to the woman's vote because there are no women voters. So yes, Abigail Adams is a total Paul. She's, she's Hillary Clinton avant la lettre. She's Eleanor Roosevelt avant la lettre. She's a very politically savvy person. And John Adams is impressive. He listens to his wife. And she's a political wife in a way that, frankly, Martha Washington isn't, that Eliza Hamilton isn't. They're great spouses, but they're not as kind of politically active in an open way, in a policy way. Um, Abigail Adams is, but she has to keep it on the down low because there's no woman vote to appeal to. Mary Todd Lincoln is, ext- is, is a really political person, very interested in politics, and that's why she likes it. Abe, and Abe is very interested to her because she's such a smart woman. But Abraham Lincoln isn't appealing to the woman's vote because there is no woman's vote. After the 19th Amendment, it becomes advantageous for a politician, a a president, or would-be president to try to think about women voters. And Ronald Reagan does think so. So only after the 19th Amendment do you get women, let's just, since I've been talking about first ladies, playing a slightly different and more open role. You get Franklin and Eleanor, Bill and Hillary, Barack 
and Michelle. You've always had politically active first ladies, but, but not quite as openly as you do after the 19th Amendment. Well, I think you have to think of it two ways. I mean, the 19th Amendment has, out, has, has impact and has outcomes. Things happen because of the 19th Amendment. But also the 19th Amendment happens because itself because of other trends, because of you know moves towards empowering women in other ways. And when Sandra Day and so there's naturally going to be a time lag. So when Sandra Day O'Connor goes to law school, only two percent of the law students in the United States are women. So naturally the the pool of of women that would even you know, be considered for the Supreme Court is going to be relatively small, you know, for some time. Um, so there, again, it's a part, women are rising, and the 19th Amendment is both cause and effect. Um, and, and so I think that has to be thought of as well. Oh, and she thinks about it, and I'm going to come to that, you know, pretty quickly. And where she comes from, she comes from the West. That's not coincidental. She comes from a state system. That's not coincidental. She begins to think about states and the West and women and the 19th Amendment, because of course she would, because she thinks about her own life and how it is that she is first. So all true, Andy, and we're going to talk about all that stuff. In our previous episode on Rahimi, we talked about how the 19th Amendment might be importantly relevant in thinking about guns in America. And we gave a big shout out to the great theorist of the 19th Amendment, uh, my colleague, Reva Siegel, and we posted her article, She the People, in the Harvard Law Review, and her brief in Rahimi that's all about how women might think differently about domestic violence than men. And when women become voters, you're going to get laws about domestic violence that maybe you didn't have in the era before women are voters. But Ronald Reagan, you see, is aware of an emerging gender gap. He's also from the West. The West is not an important in all of this. He, he's a state. He comes from state government, as does Senator Day O'Connor. This is not unimportant. Our topics today are going to include federalism in all sorts of ways and, and the West in all sorts of ways. He's aware of a possible gender gap that is beginning to widen. And by that, I don't mean that Republicans are losing the women's vote, but that maybe they're get, they're winning the women's vote by a lesser margin than the men's vote. That's the gender gap is is not that uh, women vote for one party and men vote for another, although that that is generally true in America today. But just if they're just different proportions, we call that a gender gap um, between the two parties. Ronald Reagan is aware of that, and he promises an effect to appoint the first woman to the Supreme Court. That's a kind of campaign promise. And he's elected in 1980, and he keeps that campaign promise. And the first vacancy, when Potter Stewart steps off the court, a Yale College, Yale Law School graduate, by the way, Andy, Reagan picks Justice O'Connor. He's true to his word. Who's going to later be in that tradition? Joe Biden. When he says, I'm not just going to fill the Breyer vacancy with a woman, I want to fill it with a black woman. He was a little bit more quota-ish and emphatic, saying it will be a black woman rather than we're going to give very serious consideration and blah, blah, blah. But Biden's not the first. Reagan says that openly. And he does actually end up picking someone who doesn't, Andy, quite have some of the conventional credentials. You alluded to this because there are not as many women who do have some of the conventional credentials. Now, Senator Day O'Connor went to a great college, Stanford, a great law school, Stanford, graduated very high in her class, 
it's often said third, but I've never been able to quite confirm that. As she was in the top 10%, as was William Rehnquist, with whom actually she was um, very friendly. And indeed, we now know he once proposed marriage to her. So that's about as friendly as you can get short of marriage itself. She could have um, said yes. Well, apparently she got, and she not only graduated, you know, at the top of her class um, at Stanford, I read that she got no fewer than four marriage proposals. She had outstanding academic credentials, and yet she couldn't quite get a job at, at a big law firm as a lawyer at a place like Gibson, Dunn & Crusher. So she's hired as a legal secretary initially, and the jobs she initially gets are governmental jobs because the big law firms aren't so interested because there's massive prejudice against women. She ends up having a governmental path rather than a big law path. And she ends up actually um, running for office and being, I believe, the first woman majority leader in a major state in Arizona. She then eventually is uh, put on the bench, but she's not a, at the time of her nomination by Reagan, she's not a sitting federal court of appeals judge, as are all the justices today, except for Justice Kagan. They were sitting federal court of appeals judges at the time of their nomination. And Kagan, it was kind of like that. She was Solicitor General in an earlier period. And Justice O'Connor, before she was Justice O'Connor, was not federal appellate Judge O'Connor. She wasn't state Supreme Court Justice O'Connor. She was at a state appellate court, an intermediate court. And by certain metrics, you could say, oh, that's a different profile and it's a different profile because it's an affirmative action profile of a certain sort. Reagan is engaging in affirmative action, but here's affirmative action at its best, being open to non-traditional candidates, underrepresented candidates with slightly different backgrounds, because maybe there's implicit bias or explicit bias against certain folks. And affirmative action in a certain way, understood from a certain perspective, is a kind of remedial corrective just to try to offset the explicit and implicit biases by reaching out and finding really, really excellent and impressive people who may not have the standard credentials because they're not in the old boys network. Yeah, I think in her case, it's, you know, I think it's a stronger, it's a very strong form of affirmative action in the sense that this is someone, you mentioned third in her class or or something like that, you know, at Stanford Law School, elected to the state, to, to the state legislator, state legislature, elected to trial judge. So these are, are powerful credentials. That, uh, and is it trial judge? She's elect, yes, she's elected as a trial judge and then appointed to the uh, Court of Appeals. So she's elected to the Maricopa County Supreme Court. Okay. Um, and, and, then, and speaker uh, and, and majority leader of her Yeah, majority uh, leader of the state legislature, the first woman to be majority leader of any state legislature in the United States. So these are powerful credentials that are merit-based largely. Um, and so therefore you can say that if you took a man with those credentials, of course he would have been qualified, for example, to be hired by a law firm, just for example. Um, so, mm -hmm. so this is not a matter of dipping down in the in the level of credentials that one is seeking um, in order to fill a spot. Instead, it's it's dipping up, you know, and taking someone actually better than than you know other people that are being hired. So, and so, and and, re and remember also, Andy, if you look at it from the perspective not of twenty twenty, 
but of 1980, although today the Supreme Court is filled with um, people who at the time of nomination were sitting Federal Court of Appeals judges. That wasn't true, kind of looking backwards, you see. Earl Warren is um, a governor, and Hugo Black is a senator, and Robert Jackson is Solicitor General and an Attorney General. She did absolutely excel in political life, and she has extraordinary political skills to go along with the obvious legal and analytic skills she showed to be a superstar student at an outstanding Western law school, um, Stanford Law School. I think, you know, it's, it's interesting, you know, when you would think about, well, what might be the attitude towards affirmative action on the part of an individual who had this kind of life story? I think it's interesting because if she were to look in the mirror, she would not, you know, see someone, and again, this goes to my earlier point, she would not see someone that was really given favors by affirmative action, but rather treated justly by affirmative action. And therefore, she might see the, the justice in it, you know, to the degree, the degree that there is justice in it, you know, more than someone that, uh, that had a different, uh, different story. So we're going to talk about Grutter and affirmative action. It's going to be one of our 10 topics in, in this episode. Uh, just to stick to the woman theme, if we're picking the great opinion on Senator Day O'Connor's watch, that's all about the rights of women against discrimination, it's not an O'Connor opinion. The greatest opinion, she actually writes some interesting opinions. One is in the case called Hogan. It's about a nursing school for which women only are eligible. And she says, that's, that's not right. That's not fair. That's stereotypical. It's a glass ceiling. Maybe if it were an all-women's medical school for doctors, that might be different. But this was in effect saying, oh, women should be nurses and maybe men should be doctors. So she, she does have an important, um, some important opinions that she wrote about gender discrimination. But the biggest one on her watch is an opinion by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And it's the VMI case, United States versus Virginia. And here's what you need to know. And Evan Thomas highlights this in a nice op-ed that he wrote, I think, in the Washington Post. It's also in his excellent book about her called First, Ruth Bader Ginsburg writes, I think, her greatest opinion, the opinion of her life in United States versus Virginia, the Virginia Military Institute case, where the court strikes down VMI's policies for almost all of history. Basically, a VMI was male only. Um, they did, there wasn't even an alternative. It wasn't separate but equal because there, there wasn't any separate, equal, supposedly equal alternative. Then, basically, in part, I think because of concern of that this would be invalidated, Virginia comes up with an alternative to VMI, a, a so-called VMI for women. I think it's called Mary Baldwin, but it's not remotely equal in um, resources, in reputation, in academic credentials, in selectivity. And so it's actually a pretty easy case. Forever, there was nothing remotely comparable. There was no Radcliffe to VMI's Harvard. And then when they created one, it was no Radcliffe. So even if you think separate but equal might be okay, this wasn't equal. And that's what the Supreme Court rules in the VMI case. There's one dissenter, Justice Scalia, uh, in the name of tradition, 
One person recuses himself, Clarence Thomas, his son, was actually a student at VMI, and that was a proper and good recusal on Justice Thomas's behalf. Justice, Chief Justice Rehnquist concurs in Justice Ginsburg's ruling, but on slightly you know, different grounds. But it's an epic Ginsburg opinion about some of her biggest themes, which are women's rights. She, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is a, she's going to be the second woman on the court after Justice O'Connor, and her early life is different from O'Connor's because she actually is a crusader for women's rights, bringing lawsuit after lawsuit, challenging sex discrimination in various ways. In Jeff Rosen's great phrase, she's the Thurgood Marshall of the civil of the women's rights movement, is Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So she writes the opinion, and the audience is saying, wait a minute, I thought we were talking about O'Connor here. Yes, here's why, and here's what Evan Thomas mentions. Ruth Bader Ginsburg gets to write that opinion because Sandra Day O'Connor generously gives it to her, so to speak. The senior justice in the majority at the conference was John Paul Stevens, because remember, Rehnquist isn't quite on board. Uh, he's the chief justice, and ex officio, he would make the assignment. Yeah, ex officio, he would make the assignment, but he's not quite on board. So John Paul Stevens, the senior justice in the majority, recognizing this is a woman's rights case, gives the honor to Sandra O'Connor. She's the first woman. She has seniority. That actually makes a certain sense. And to her everlasting credit, she says, I think Ruth deserves this. Because Ruth had written more about this, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And, and Ginsburg later says, I loved her for that. Okay, because this is a very you know, generous, unselfish thing to do. I don't know of that many other situations in the history of the court where a justice has done that, deferred to someone more junior. And maybe that's a sisterly thing to do. Maybe there's something possibly gendered even about that, but gendered in a great way. That's a great model for us all. So the first of 10 topics that we're talking about, women's rights, the great O'Connor opinion, I'm arguing in effect, was authored by Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and maybe it's Ginsburg's greatest opinion for the court, and that's the Virginia Military Institute case, United States versus Virginia. But give Justice O'Connor credit for that. You know, you, you mentioned her political background. This is, uh, aside from being a generous move, it, it might be a politically savvy move, you know, in the court as well. Certainly would generate a certain loyalty or, or you know, almost a debt you know, on the part of, of our RBG towards uh, Justice O'Connor. That's the first one. And it might not come to mind when you see the, you know, the O'Connor oeuvre just because it doesn't bear her name. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Well, now, but getting back to this theme of, of uh, a certain parallelism or, or at least influence between yourself and Justice O'Connor, uh, I think maybe we should talk about her most... Uh, what you consider her most ambitious decision from almost a scholarly or theoretically point of a theoretical point of view and how you were involved in a back and forth. I would say perhaps the, the most famous and enduring and interesting constitutional law uh, ruling by the Supreme Court in a majority opinion authored by Justice O'Connor um, would be a case called New York versus United States. In this case, which is decided in 1992, the Supreme Court makes a major statement about federalism. And remember, it's coming from a former state court judge. That's her pathway to the Supreme Court is through state governmental 
service. So it's not a total coincidence that she'd be really interested in federalism. New York versus United States, 1992, stands for the proposition that Congress cannot, by statute, compel a state legislature to affirmatively pass a law of any sort. Congress can preempt states in all sorts of situations where states have passed laws. Congress could say, you can't do this or that or the other thing, but Congress can't say, you must actually regulate this area. States are allowed to say, listen, if you want it regulated, do it yourself, but don't use us as your puppet. In New York versus United States, to repeat, the Supreme Court says Congress can't commandeer a state legislature, kind of take it over and, and make it just a Congress's mouthpiece. I think this opinion is correctly decided, and indeed, I'm cited in it. It's, in fact, Andy, um, again, I know this is a little bit of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, but it's the first time that, I've been, uh, that I was cited by a majority opinion in the Supreme Court. We've mentioned, you know, because I keep track of stuff like this, that I've been cited about in about four dozen Supreme Court cases. But yeah, no one in the audience is surprised that you keep track of this. <laughs> three dozen of those, Andy, are in concurrences or dissents. Only about a dozen are in majority opinions. Majority opinions are in the main less likely to sign uh, uh, to cite scholars. You, you don't need to cite a scholar. You got five or more votes. So anyway, it's the first majority opinion to cite me. It cites uh, an article called Of Sovereignty and Federalism in Yale Law Journal, which is the first thing I ever wrote as a law professor. And that article will later go on to be cited a whole bu- in a whole bunch of other cases. But here's the thing, Andy. Of Sovereignty and Federalism was actually written in large part in response to and building on some of Justice O'Connor's earlier opinions, including an opinion that she wrote that was a dissent in 1982. So what was the proposition in question at that time? Tell us a little bit about the legal uh, response back and forth here. What did she say and how did you respond? In 1982? Yes. She writes uh, a dissent in a case called FERC versus Mississippi. It's all about whether kind of federal agencies can kind of tell states what to do in various ways. And she doesn't like the bossiness of the federal government and federal agencies, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. It used to be, I think, be called the Federal Power Agency or something, Federal Power Commission. But she she doesn't like federal regulation um, intruding deeply into state policy and interfering with what states are doing, messing with states. But the most interesting thing about her dissent is she's got a theory of federalism. She actually says, here's why federalism is constitutionally important. And she identifies four or five different themes of federalism. Here's one that's particularly interesting. She says that federalism enables people to vote with their feet, a laboratories of um, experimentation. We can do it, things one way in the West and do things differently in the Eastern states. Now, of course, you might say, well, that's not a new idea, Kiel. That's very famous. That's Louis, Louis Brandeis. That's states as laboratories. And it is, but she gives it a twist and a distinctive twist, a distinctive Western twist um, and a distinctive feminist twist. And I write about this, actually, in an early draft of Sovereignty and Federalism. Let me read to you, Andy, what Justice Brandeis says in a famous case from the 1930s, and then what Justice O'Connor says. So here's Brandeis. 
It's a famous uh, dissent in a case called New State Ice v. Liebman. This is his big idea about states as laboratories. Denial of the right to experiment may be fraught with serious consequences to the nation. It is one of the happy incidents of the federal system that a single courageous state may, if its citizens choose, serve as a laboratory and try novel social and economic experiments without risk to the rest of the country. Okay, so now here's what O'Connor says in this 1982 dissent in a case called FERC versus Mississippi. The 50 states serve as laboratories for the development of new social, economic, and political ideas. This state innovation is no judicial myth. When Wyoming became a state in 1890, it was the only state permitting women to vote. That novel idea did not bear national fruit for another 30 years. Wisconsin pioneered unemployment insurance, while Massachusetts initiated minimum wage laws for women and, minor, women and minors. In addition to promoting experimentation, federalism enhances the opportunity of all citizens to participate in representative government. Alexis de Tocqueville understood well the, that participation in local government is a cornerstone of American democracy. If we want to preserve the ability of citizens to learn democratic processes through participation in local government, citizens must retain the power to govern, not merely administer their local problems. Okay, so you see some similarities, but here are some differences. And this is what, again, I write about in the first draft of this article called Of Sovereignty and Federalism, um, which is the first thing I ever wrote as a law professor. Justice O'Connor's opinion has a different flavor from Justice Brandeis's. To be sure, she does not abandon progressive insight. She, too, seeks to encourage local experimentation and points to successful social and economic experiments, but she garnishes the insight with a colorful assortment of populist images. She adds the word political to Justice Brandeis's duo of social and economic. She recounts Wyoming's extension of political participation rights to women. She associates state laboratories with political ideas. She summons up a vision of citizens learning democratic processes through participation in local government. She explicitly invokes Alexis de Tocqueville. And then I go on to say, the 1890 Wyoming suffrage law she invokes nicely illustrates federalism's opportunities for, and this is my quote, domicile shopping. Perhaps Wyoming extended the franchise to women in order to induce more women to immigrate there. By allowing them to vote with their hands, Wyoming encouraged them to vote with their feet. Okay, so I'm taking her ideas and trying to sort of build on them a little bit. And here's what I'm saying. Okay, she's actually really focusing on women's suffrage as an important issue. How did that come about? Okay, because women's suffrage, women's suffrage in the end, it, through the 19th Amendment, is going to put her on the court through Ronald Reagan. But, but how did it come about? It came about through federalism, in part, states experimenting. Why were they experimenting? And that's what I began to say, oh, maybe Wyoming actually gave women the vote to encourage women to move to Wyoming. In fact, as I later you know, studied the thing, that turned out to be right. And that was an important part of a book I wrote called America's Constitutional Biography. It's going to be a huge part of the new book I'm working on called Born Equal. But O'Connor is the person who was actually saying, let's ask where the 19th Amendment came from. Because the 19th Amendment 
leads to Justice O'Connor, and she says, it comes from federalism. It comes from state experimentation. Oh, she's summing up this vision of, of citizen participation and openness. That was her pathway through local government. Maybe she was stymied at, at big law, you know, but she was able to, to serve in Arizona government, and it was more open to women, to ordinary citizens. So you're seeing her kind of reflecting, in a way, her own biography in thinking about this really important idea of federalism. I haven't connected it to New York versus United States yet, you know, and how, how we get from that to the anti-commandeering principle, and I will. But let me just say one other thing about federalism, because this is a huge theme of the article of sovereignty and federalism. I say, actually, think about all the ways in which state government influences federal policy and federal politics. Think about the presidency, because she doesn't become Justice O'Connor without President Reagan nominating her. Well, who's President Reagan? He was Governor Reagan before. He was governor of a Western state, just like she was you know, majority leader of a Western state. And people in the West actually have a little bit more of an anti-federalist sensibility because they're very far from the, the seat of power. Think about all the other governors who become presidents in the modern era or presidential candidates. Think right now, okay, on the Republican side, you're talking about Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis and Chris Christie. Those are the big alternative, the three biggest alternatives to Trump, all governors. Jimmy uh, Carter, Bill Clinton were governors, you know, certainly plenty of governors. George W. Bush. And then when we talk about the runners up, the Michael Dukakis's of the world, okay, this And Richard is, Nixon even, you know, ran for governor, famously lost to uh, Pat Brown. So she's interested in woman suffrage, the West, federalism, voting with your feet, all that stuff. And you see it in this dissent in FERC. Now, who helped her with that dissent? That was actually, I believe, her law clerk that year. Her name is Deborah Jones Merritt. And Deborah Jones Merritt will kind of come back in the story because she and Akil write at about the same time some articles about federalism that build on O'Connor's vision. Okay, so I already told you I'm actually writing all about O'Connor in the first draft of, of, of sovereignty and federalism. Like, what are states good for? And I say, here's the biggest thing of all. The biggest thing of all that states are good for is pushing back against federal officialdom when the federal government violates the Constitution. Yes, it's wonderful that, that states can give us a leadership cadre. So when you want to think about alternatives to the existing president, you can look at governors and who offer a different vision. Oh, Gavin Newsom. Okay. That was just the debate this week between Gavin Newsom and Ron DeSantis. Here's a blue governor. Here's a red governor. They're giving Americans visions of what America could be going forward. Okay. So politically, federalism is important in giving us you know, alternative leaders. But legally, Akil says it's important because the Constitution doesn't make the federal government supreme in every respect. It makes the Constitution supreme. Well, what happens when the federal government violates the Constitution? Oh, I'm really happy that we have states around because states can sometimes give me remedies against federal unconstitutionality. When the federal government takes my property without just compensation, it's state property law that gives me standing, that gives me a cause of action. When, the, when federal officialdom come into my house and unreasonably search and seize me in all sorts of ways. It's state trespass law that gets me into court. This is the big idea, or one of the big ideas of the sovereignty and federalism. And it's growing out of Justice O'Connor's 
dissent in FERC saying, what are states good for? Why do we have federalism in the first place? So I start theorizing about this, and I end up cutting out the O'Connor discussion um, and the Brandeis discussion because the article was too long. I later publish it. But I'm actually building on O'Connor. This is what academics do. They read judicial opinions, and then they try to think about them and maybe come up with larger frameworks of analysis and other applications, and, and they theorize it. And so that's what I'm doing, and that's what Deborah Jones Merritt is doing. She's about my age, and she's clerked for Justice O'Connor, and she writes an article in the Columbia Law Review that's all about federalism. At the same time that a sovereignty and federalism comes out, one's in the Yale Law Journal, hers is in the Columbia Law Review. And we're actually thinking about federalism and Justice O'Connor's vision of federalism. And then, actually, interestingly, Justice O'Connor writes a majority opinion for the court in a case called Gregory v. Ashcroft. And in Gregory v. Ashcroft, she's now not just talking about Tocqueville, but talking about the Federalist Papers. And she puts side by side a quote from the Federalist number 28 and a quote from the Federalist 51. And 51 says, oh, separation of powers can provide checks against illegality. The different branches of the federal government can kind of compete against each other and protect rights. And Federalist 28 says, oh, the same thing is true of federalism. Now, no one before Keel had come along had actually put Federalist 28 side by side with Federalist 51 and said, oh, for the same reasons that separation of powers might be good, federalism is good, and it can provide a check against federal lawlessness. One of the best reasons to have states around is that when the federal government misbehaves, we've got you know, another government that can, that can help us. And so I, I read Gregory versus Ashcroft. Let's not talk about the details of the, the case. And Justice O'Connor say, oh my gosh, Justice O'Connor is actually paying attention to this stuff because no one had ever put these two together. We said that, Andy, on an earlier episode. And um, one of our readers, uh, one of our audience members actually sent me an email saying, oh, Akil, that's so interesting. But you know, I was the law clerk that year and we weren't thinking about you at all. We were actually thinking about Deborah Jones' merit. And I email him back, and we'll put this all on the show notes. I said, yeah, you were thinking about Deborah Jones Merritt, but Deborah Jones Merritt was citing Akeel, okay? And no one had done Federalist 28 and 51 before. And I, of course, was building on O'Connor, building on Merritt, who was the law clerk for the FERC decision. Merritt reads my piece and says, oh, Akeel is saying some similar things. O'Connor is building on all of that. That's all in Gregory versus Ashcroft, which was absolutely spectacular for me because I thought, oh, the justice is actually paying attention to these ideas. This made it into a Supreme Court majority opinion. And here's the key phrase, that the most important reason to have federalism is to provide a check against federal illegality. I said, wow, that's just my view. That's what sovereignty and federalism is about. The Supreme Court is getting it. Okay, they didn't cite me, but who cares? You know, they, they, they're getting the idea. This is wonderful. And this is originalism. This is Federalist 28. This is Federalist 51. Wow. New York comes along and it actually says the same thing about the purposes of federalism. It actually cites the Kilimar of sovereignty and federalism, but not quite for the pr proposition that I most would have wanted to be cited for, which is this one, but, but who cares? Okay. Now, how does any of that connect to what New York says, which is the federal government can't commandeer state government? Here's how it connects. And this is what I say in my constitutional law case book with Sandy Levinson and Reva Siegel and Christina Rodriguez and Jack Balkan. Because what are states good for? 
pushing back against the federal government when it acts illegally, giving you a different leadership cadre. If you don't like existing federal leadership, you have state governors who are pushing back. What happened when John Adams started prosecuting critics of the federal government with the Alien Sedition Acts? Where are you going to mobilize? If you, if you mobilize in the newspapers, he'll prosecute you for publishing stuff in the newspapers. Political parties didn't really, um, national political parties hadn't yet established themselves. So where did pushback against John Adams' illegality, unconstitutionality come from? The Virginia and Kentucky state legislatures. Just as colonial assemblies pushed back against parliament in the 1760s and 1770s, which is what the words that made us, the, the recent book is all about, so too in the 1790s, states are pushing back against the federal government when it's violating people's rights. And newspapers are then reprinting the Virginia and Kentucky results, but they have a republication privilege to reprint what has been said on the state legislative floor. There's sort of special legislative freedom of speech and debate. So that's what the Alien Sedition Acts you know, were all about and the, with the pushback of the Virginia and K Kentucky results. So if that's the vision, we need states because when the federal government does bad things, thank God for state law that can give us standing into courts. Thank God for state politicians who can run against federal officialdom. Thank God for state legislatures for articulating opposition to federal lawlessness. Well, if all of that's so, you can't let Congress commandeer this state legislature because if it can say you can have to pass this law on this topic, oh, can say you have to pass 10 laws on these 10 topics, and then you've lost control of your agenda as an independent entity whose core purpose is in part to be able to mobilize opposition to federal oppression. So we have to preserve the independence of state legislatures, just like we have to preserve the independence of the Sierra Club or the Democratic Party, or the Catholic Church. And so we wouldn't want to let the federal government tell the Catholic Church what it has to talk about on Sunday, or the Democratic Party what it has to talk about in its national convention. And for very similar reasons, we wouldn't want the federal government to be able to tell state legislatures, here's what you have to spend your time doing. So in New York versus the United States, is that the, is that the rationale that she uses? Um, to to come out with this ruling? I mean, you say, well, this is why you don't like the anti-commandeering rule, sure. Is that the reason that she gave? It's not truthfully as perfectly explicit as it is in our casebook explaining, you know, why uh, New York is basically right. But this is, no, but look, She's got to get a bunch of other justices to go, to go along. She's, she's got other things to do. This is one of 100 cases they're deciding, maybe 120. So I'm explaining to you in the ecosystem, what scholars do is sometimes connect the dots and elaborate and say, yes, you're on the right track and here's why, or no, actually you took a wrong turn at Albuquerque and you need to reorient the thing. But she says the right thing, the most important purpose of states is to push back against federal unconstitutionality. She does say that. She does cite of sovereignty and federalism. In an earlier case and, and in other cases, she puts Federalist 28 back to back with Federalist 51. And she says the federal government can't commandeer states, which seems to me sensible if you understand all of that. So, you know, wow, that's, that's pretty darn good. But yes, Andy, it's true that I connect the dots a little bit more explicitly than that opinion does. But I think it's a really important opinion. And by acclamation, 
That's one of her most important opinions. There's a piece in USA Today, for example, a tribute to her identifying her most important decisions, and, and that's one of the big ones. Okay, so she and has this proven to be an enduring decision? So you you know you've you've shown that this this decision, um, at least the way you interpret it, is soundly grounded in original principles in the in Federalist twenty eight and fifty one. So it's you know it relies on the Constitution um, in a fundamental way, and therefore, under your theory of originalism, I think part of you would think that this would prove to be an enduring opinion that that was either unchallenged or in the future, or when it is challenged, it, it's robust, reinforced. Um, how is it? How is it aged? Very well, and you're right. My descriptive theory is that rightly decided opinions age better. Originalist opinions that are actually well grounded are are more solid. And this one has aged well. It's actually been extended, maybe even too far. A case called Prince says not only can the federal government not tell a state legislature that it has to um, affirmatively pass laws, and not only can it not commandeer a state legislature, the federal government can't commandeer state executive officials. The case is called Prince. It's about the Brady Bill. The Brady Bill told state executive officials that they had to enforce certain things about gun purchases with uh, fill out some various federal forms. And in Prince, the court says, just like you can't take over state legislatures, you can't take over state executive branches. I'm not sure that that makes as much sense because state executives are always enforcing laws that they themselves didn't make. They, they're, they're basically executors. They don't quite have the same kind of agenda capacity, um, setting capacity that state legislatures historically have. The Prince case cites a very interesting article by Sai Prakash, he wrote it as his uh, student paper under my supervision, saying, gee, executives are, state executives are different from legislatures. But in the Prince case, um, where Sai's work is cited but not followed, Justice Thomas actually writes a, a little concurrence saying, gee, as long as we're thinking about all this thing, there's this, uh, this uh, Brady Bill Act. It, it implicates federalism. Can the federal government basically tell sh- sheriffs what to do, local sheriffs? Okay. But it also implicates guns. At some point, we should think about whether the Second Amendment actually is about a gun right. And he cites, you know, this is in a concurrence, Akhil Amar on guns. Uh, okay, again, audience, you're getting a Rosencrantz and Gildenstern perspective on, on Hamlet here. But New York versus United States, I think, is by acclamation a landmark decision about federalism. And it is aged pretty well. And that isn't true of all of Justice O'Connor's opinions. You know, for example, her Casey decision on abortion, which was basically tossed overboard. Well, and, so I think um, that jobs. Know, I think that, uh, you know, we're going to look at some of these opinions. And I think, you know, my question, I think, is geared to the notion of, of her jur- jurisprudence in general. Like, you know, was Justice O'Connor an originalist? By temperament and 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 overall, maybe this New York versus the United States opinion has originalist features, but I think she has these other opinions, um, which were important opinions, which maybe were less originalist, and maybe yes, maybe they haven't uh, you know uh, aged as well, or maybe they have. You know, let's take a look. So you yeah, so so just Andy, here's just a way to test it: How many times are the Federalist Papers cited in a majority opinion by Justice O'Connor? 
And my claim is New York versus United States, you know, and some of our other opinions that cite Federalist Papers, they've actually aged better than, say, her opinion in Casey, the abortion decision that doesn't cite Federalist Papers and and, and, and hasn't aged as well. So yes, Justice O'Connor, is, um, she wasn't a total, uh, you know, originalist and nothing but, not at all. She has many other um, components to her. She's pragmatic. She's uh, um, a consensus builder. She's a balancer. There, there are many different features of her jurisprudence, but she wasn't afraid to make originalist arguments and her most important contribution, her federalism cases, actually, Gregory versus Ashcroft and New York versus United States are probably her most enduring legacy, probably, thus far. And those opinions are originalist opinions that really talk a lot about text history and structure and the Federalist Papers. Okay, so let's look at some of these other opinions. You mentioned Casey. Um, so that's certainly a big one. Planned Parenthood and it doesn't bear Casey. her name officially. It's a, a joint opinion by Justices Souter and Kennedy and O'Connor. She's the most uh, senior of those three. Okay. Um, and then I guess we, we can look at these three opinions together, I suppose, um, as, as three of her biggest. So there's Casey, there's Gruder affirmative action case, and then there's McConnell, which is a campaign finance case. Okay, let me separate out Gruder for just a second, just briefly on these others, because they've been less enduring. Although she has original sensibilities, she also cares about precedent. Um, She cares more about precedent than some originalists do. And she says in Casey, Roe may have gone too far in this way or that way, but its core holding should not be lightly abandoned. In Casey, the court continues to pay strong lip service to Roe versus Wade, and that's all tossed overboard by the Dobbs decision. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and of course... It's interesting because both Gruder and, and Casey, you know, affirmative action and women's rights, I suppose, you know, are personal are themes of her life um, and as well as themes so, of these cases. All right, well, let me just take a moment here to uh, provide our listeners who are interested in obtaining continuing legal education credit uh, from listening to this episode with the code for this week's uh, this week's episode. And the code, which you will need to input when you go to podcast.njsba.com in order to gain your credit. And just as a reminder, in New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania, that credit is available essentially directly by doing this. Um, And in other states, available through reciprocity. Now, there are some states where, you know, the, the details are a little sketchy, so you'll need to check with your own state bar association outside of those three states. Um, But at any rate, the code for this week is HOLIDAY, HOLIDAY, H-O-L-I-D-A-Y, and it's not case sensitive. So thank you again to the New Jersey State Bar Association for partnering on this. And by the way, Akil is going to be appearing at the New Jersey State Bar Association this week Um, at an annual event and uh, speaking about the court and prominent cases and the words that made us. So um, there's still, I think, some availability, Um, although when you listen to this podcast, it will be the next day, Thursday, uh, December 7th. But 
um, nevertheless, check out the New Jersey State Bar Association website if you're interested in attending. So thank you. So let me just, um, I'll, again, we'll, t- we'll talk a little bit more about Casey. My criticism of Casey, um, my biggest criticism is methodological. It, it's way too much precedent, 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 whether it's right or wrong. There's only one or two sentences where it really tries to root the row right in the Constitution, because Roe itself doesn't even mention any constitutional text, doesn't even quote it. There is one sentence about women's equality in the Casey decision, um, how uh, access to abortion is import, has been important in women's lives. It was a good sentence. It was better than anything that Roe had. It didn't talk about women's equality at all and often talked about the doctor's right to perform an abortion. The doctor was always a he. So Roe was a disaster. Casey actually has one sentence about women. Let me, let's actually read that sentence. But there should have been a lot more. And my claim is that it's been a mistake for abortion advocates to, um, to emphasize precedent rather than to try to make original arguments. And Andy, we're building now a descriptive theory here. Casey in part fails because it doesn't try to make a strong originalist case for its conclusions. Here's the sentence, Andy, in Casey. The ability of women to participate equally in the economic and social life of the nation has been facilitated by their ability to control their reproductive lives. Very important idea. I wish she had said a lot more about it. Your critique of Casey overall then will just say is that it's less, it has some originalism in it, perhaps not much. And to the degree that it relies Not nearly on, enough. And to the degree that it relies on precedent, which is heavily, it eventually uh, succumbs. What about neither of those? What about sort of a pragmatic or outcome-based approach? Is there any of that in Casey? Tons. And is that part of her jurisprudence in general as well? Yes, absolutely. And, and she comes out of political world, um, a world of practical accommodation and compromise. It was often mentioned that uh, she was uh, at the center of the court, but there are two ways, and, and just from a certain mathematical point of view, if they're four to your left, so to speak, and four to your right, if you're the median justice, then you're in the middle. But there are two ways of being in the middle. She was a splitter by nature, and Justice Kennedy who succeeded her in that middle slot when, when she stepped off, was a swinger, okay? She tended to compromise the difference between left and right and come up with a, a middle solution, often very fact-based, often very balancey, often very um, prudential and, and kind of practical um, rather than high theoretical. Those were her instincts as a person, as a Paul. Justice Kennedy saw himself, I think, more as a theorist, and and he was more of a swinger rather than a splitter. She split the difference. He sometimes was all in on the left, Obergefell, same-sex marriage, other times all in on the right, for example, in in the, say, the Sibelius case. Now, I think he was correct in Citizens United. We haven't talked about that. Um, That was, uh, many people think, on the right, all in on the right. But, But Justice Kennedy you know, um, has, has a different kind of judicial personality. Her instinct was a little different, was to position herself between left and right rather than half with, the, you know, uh, all left or all right in different cases. So she's a splitter. He's a swinger. 
Well, you mentioned Citizens United. I mean, another one of her big cases was the McConnell case. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, she was willing to uphold certain aspects of the McCain-Feingold so-called campaign finance reform bill, part of the law that said certain corporations within 60 days of an election can't spend money on broadcast media if they are supporting this candidate or that one explicitly. And I thought this was absurd. The First Amendment allows you to basically support candidates with ads. Um, corporations, I like Mitt Romney here, are persons too, my friend. But corporations are covered by the First Amendment. They're called the New York Times. They're called Random House. They're called Basic Books, and God bless them. And we're not talking about giving money to a candidate that can be misused. George Santos, you know, are you out there? Okay. I've always been nervous about campaign contributions because they can often be misappropriated for personal use and they can be very close to bribes. They're technically given to a candidate's campaign, but candidates find ways of taking that money and diverting them for personal purposes. And George Santos proves all of that. So I've always been fierce on the need to regulate campaign contributions. But independent expenditures, ads saying, vote for Lipka, vote against Amar, that's core First Amendment activity. It gets to be engaged in by corporations. And if you sometimes if you try to pro- prohibit that, fine. Corporations won't run ads. They'll own the media itself, and they'll give endorsements to Lipka or against Amar or what have you. So Citizens United comes along and smashes that part of the McConnell decision. I'm with Justice Kennedy. I said all this way, way before these decisions, even before the McCain-Feingold law had been passed, I was criticizing certain aspects of it. I wrote an essay in the American Lawyer called How Do You Spell Reform? J-O-K-E. So I thought it was sham reform. I believe in campaign finance reform. I thought this wasn't it. This was actually incumbent self-protection. Who really benefits from a ban on talking about running ads 60 days before an election? Incumbents in general do uh, because they already have the name recognition. And challengers need to give voters in general a reason to vote against the incumbent. So I thought this was like the Sedition Act that this was a law passed by Congress, entrenching Congress from from criticism. The Sedition Act made it a crime to criticize Congress. It did, and it was a disgrace. And this law, in effect, makes it very difficult to take the airwaves against Congress in 60 days before an election. So on that one, with great respect to the late Justice O'Connor, I was not on her side. I was with Justice Kennedy's opinion, and that opinion has endured. Citizens United, it's controversial in certain circles, and Andy, will, I'm sure, will be coming back to it in future episodes, but I thought that was rightly decided. So we haven't talked about Grutter, so, um, and of course, we have talked about Grutter, just not in this episode. We talked about it at great length with uh, Jeff Brenzel uh, when he was a uh, guest for two episodes of our podcast, uh, because it's a very important uh, affirmative action decision, which now... Uh, some might say, lay in, lays in ruins. So uh, what would you have to say about Grutter? That Grutter was formally overturned, but in fact, Grutter was much more nuanced and balanced and careful. I'm not sure, truthfully, that Justice O'Connor would be completely outraged by what the court did because and universities were going way beyond what 
what Grutter actually authorized. Let's take a step back. And once again, audience, you're going to get a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern perspective on all this. So it begins with Justice O'Connor's own life. And then Akil kind, kind of comes into the picture in a, in a kind of an interesting way. Justice O'Connor understands herself to be the beneficiary of a certain kind of affirmative action, maybe a benign kind and a proper kind, but Ronald Reagan says, I'm looking for a woman, and, and, and he picks one. There's a famous ex, um, exchange that she has with Justice Scalia once during the court's uh, weekly private conference. I'm quoting here from an essay in The uh, Atlantic that was written by Evan Thomas, distilling his, his great book first. Once, during the court's weekly private conference, when Justice Anton Scalia was declaiming against racial and gender preference, O'Connor dryly remarked, why, Nino, how do you think I got my job? <laughs> okay, so, so she's aware of that. She writes this opinion in Adirond. It's about government contractors that seems to suggest that you can't have racial preference of any sort whatsoever. It really seems, in effect, to have overruled the Bakke decision, which said you can take race into account as a plus factor in education. Enter Akil and Neil. We believe, Akil and Neil do, that it, it should be permissible in very modest ways to take race into account as a plus factor in education. We think that Justice Powell's approach in Bakke should be preserved at least for a while longer. And by Neil, you mean, of course, Neil Katyal. Great, right. And this is in 1996. He's about to start a clerkship with Justice Bar. He's clerking for the great Guido Calabresi. And we write an essay together. This was for a symposium on affirmative action out at University of California at Los Angeles, UCLA. We write a piece called Bakke's Fate. Now, in theory, this is just a piece published in, for the world. In fact, it's written for two people, for Stephen Breyer, for whom I had clerked and for whom he's about to clerk, and Breyer's very close friend, Sandra Day O'Connor. The two have bonded, begun to bond. Breyer's a Democrat, she's a Republican, but they both worked in legislatures. She as a legislator, he as general counsel. They're both kind of centrist. They're both pragmatic. They're both kind of politicians in a good way. That is, you know, people who try to get along with each other and understand, you know, how committees work and, and how you have to work with other folks. They have a lot in common by temperament, even by background. They're both from the West. And Breyer is a Democrat that Republicans like, and, and O'Connor's a Republican that Democrats like. So they, they've begun to sort of find each other on the court. And so Neil and I write this for two people, for Stephen Breyer to read and get, who believes in affirmative action in education, partly his background. His father was a school administrator and Justice O'Connor. Now, how do you persuade someone? You persuade someone, in my view, this goes all the way back to Aristotle, by drawing out something that person are, that's already in that person. You tend to, you, you most, you're most persuasive, if, you, if I can say, actually, Andy, when you, when you think about it, you, th you believe X, in fact, you believe Y. Here are all the things that you've told me before, and if you take those seriously, these are your own ideas, Andy, then you're really not an X person, you're a Y person. Okay, so remember my story, I'm actually beginning my experience as a law professor, reading Justice O'Connor's opinions on federalism. I'm interested in, federalism, interested in federalism. She's got interesting things to say about federalism. So I intuit, I'm not in the conference room when she says, 
my Nino, how do you think I got my job? But I intuit that she actually is not as fiercely opposed to affirmative action as she believes. First of all, she believes in precedent. She's a precedent. She's not just a pure originalist. She actually had a particularly close professional relationship with Lewis Powell, who also was a kind of had a political background through the American Bar Association, believed in states' rights, was a moderate, a Democrat appointed by a Republican president, Richard Nixon. Powell is the, the swing justice in this important case called Bakke. O'Connor respects Powell. Powell was very polite to O'Connor um, when she joined the court. O'Connor believes in precedent. She doesn't like, remember, uh, Casey is all about Roe and precedent. We write this law review article and it's for Justice O'Connor. And there's very little originalism in it. It's all about the cases. And it's 37 pages. The word O'Connor, I just did a word search, appears 67 times. This is for Justice O'Connor. As she goes, so will go the court. And the article goes through her opinions with great care and says, actually, here's what she hates. She hates quotas, but she hasn't ruled out pluses of a certain sort. And she also hasn't ruled on whether education might be different than government contracting. Maybe education is a different domain where the diversity theory is important. The whole point of this is simply to persuade Justice O'Connor that she herself has not closed the door on affirmative action and that she herself might actually think there's a space for it. We write one footnote that's all about Justice O'Connor, although it's in code. Here's the footnote. Another clue about a given judge or justice's leanings on Bakke may perhaps be teased out of his or her own policies in hiring law clerks. Does a particular jurist, as a government actor, consider applications in an absolutely strict race-blind way? Or instead, does the judge think about how a clerk with a particular racial identity and life experience might have something distinctive to teach the judge and fellow clerks? Now, when I write that, I know that Justice O'Connor in hiring law clerks has actually considered life experience and even racial identity. She believed that she could learn from someone who had different life experiences from her because that person was of a different racial background. I knew that to be true of Justice O'Connor. Justice O'Connor, she's self-aware. She understands she benefited from a certain benign kind of a, a fair kind of affirmative action. And she herself practiced that as a government official in hiring law clerks. Maybe she also took gender into account. I, I, I don't know, but surely she took race into account. So I'm trying to persuade her that she actually already believes in a certain modest kind of affirmative action. And that's all I think that Grutter, in fact, authorized. Grutter basically pretty closely tracked this piece that Neil and I wrote called Bakke's Fate. And I think that universities went way, way beyond Grutter in treating race as much more than a modest plus factor. Remember, Justice O'Connor thought in Grutter that although the University of Michigan Law School had policies that could be upheld, the University of Michigan undergrad did not in a companion case called Gratz, because undergrad was much more of a codified system. And even in Grutter, remember, she said, oh, maybe we shouldn't do this forever. We should just do it for 25 years. I'm not sure that she'd be completely horrified by Students for Fair Admission. Note also that she said, 
One of the reasons schools should be allowed to take race into account is uh, in our military academies so that there would be a diverse officer corps to match a, a diverse corps of enlisted men and women. And the court hasn't decided the uh, military academy issue, as uh, we've talked about in previous episodes. So in fact, I'm not sure that Students for Fair Admission is really quite the repudiation of O'Connor's vision, the way that Dobbs is the repudiation of her uh, decision in Casey. Well, what's Um, left of Grutter, other than possibly the military? What I'm saying is Grutter wasn't this huge invitation to massive Mm -hmm. quotification that the universities thought it was. They weren't paying attention to the limitations in Grutter itself. Put differently, Students for Fair Admission could have easily been decided by distinguishing Grutter rather than overruling it. Just as Chief Justice Roberts in Dobbs said, we don't need to overrule Casey. We can actually work within Casey's uh, framework of undue balance. Casey gets repudiated, by the way, on two issues in, in Dobbs. One is on the abortion issue, but the other is on the precedent issue. Casey stood for the proposition, and I was fiercely opposed to this. I, I wrote up against it in you know, 10 different places. Let me read you the key language from Casey that I most dislike and has been repeated. And this is on originalism versus precedent. A decision to overrule should rest on some special reason over and above the belief that a prior case was wrongly decided. Now, that's what it said, but it didn't cite a single precedent for that proposition. Unless it's read in a very, very narrow way, it's inconsistent with the fact that on many occasions, the court has overruled a precedent just because it was wrongly decided, like Gobitis case being overruled in Barnett, like the Swift versus Tyson case being overruled by Erie. So Dobbs repudiates the Casey plurality decision doubly on the substance of abortion rights and on the relationship between precedent and text history and structure. Contrary-wise, my claim is, so, so Casey really has been repudiated in every way. But Grutter wasn't that aggressive an opinion to begin with. It just upheld a wee little tip for racial preference, and schools were going way beyond that. And Grutter said, we imagine that this is going to end in 25 years. So I don't think Students for Fair Admission is completely you know, a repudiation of Justice O'Connor's very narrow and tentative um, embrace of affirmative action. Remember, alongside that very same day, the Gratz case, where she struck down a university policy that was way too qualified. Well, I think if Grutter came before the court today, though, the court would, would, would rule differently. The court would not rule it, it, in favor of a wee little tip. Fair enough. But, but remember, Grutter itself said... In 25 years, we expect the world will be different, and it's 20 years later now. Mm -hmm. So we've gone through those, really, some of the biggest decisions, but there are other uh, decisions that that she was involved with. Maybe she didn't write all these opinions, but... um, So, for example, uh, an important case that she was involved with was uh, Bush versus Gore. And we are now learning, thanks to Joan Biskupic, that... She originally wrote a draft in Bush versus Gore, did Justice O'Connor, that was the seed crystal of the independent state legislature doctrine, ISL doctrine. We'll put it on the show notes. And the interesting thing is she backed away from that position. She didn't, that 
many uh, passages from her memo became the Rehnquist Scalia Thomas ISL Independent State Legislature concurrence in Bush versus Gore, which I've always hated. You see, we now know that that some of that language originated with Justice O'Connor, but then, uh, for one reason or another, we don't have the full story. She moved away from. She walked away from that and embraced a different theory along with Justice Kennedy in Bush versus Gore. So she didn't join the concur- the Rehnquist concurrence, even though there's this document showing that she, you know, promulgated some of its theories early on. But when it, when push came to shove, she did not join it, and we don't know exactly why. Um, it's interesting. I, I mean, if we take her at her word that this is what she believed at that moment in, of this document, that she believed this, I, that would imply that she had moved, she changed her opinion uh, on this. So you have to give her some credit, I think, especially given yes. you know sub, we we want to give her credit because we believe yes. that ISL was wrong. The court has ruled that ISL was wrong. Um, so therefore, uh, good for her, you know, and, and this is, and, and this is in the context of, hey, she's a political person. This is a very political case, just clearly. Um, and it was done without a lot of briefing. It was, it was done in a hurry. Um, so all the, all the thing forces you would think might've been aligned against her moving off that. On the other hand, maybe she didn't want to take a strong constitutional opinion or promulgate a strong and somewhat novel constitutional theory in the context of this kind of rush, non-brief, non-academic, just, you know, is more result-oriented than theory-oriented, perhaps. But I tend to want to give her the benefit of the doubt that she actually saw the error of her ways. And note that this was a, a draft opinion all about the role of state Supreme Court justices. She she was on. She wasn't a state Supreme Court justice, but she was a state court judge. And it's all about the role of state judges under state constitutions. And so perhaps as she began to think about it, she, she changed her mind. And yes, the Supreme Court they can't be experts on everything. In fact, truthfully, they can't really be experts. We shouldn't expect them to be experts on anything. That's why briefs by scholars are so important. That's why. I'm so tickled when a justice actually does cite a scholar. I think this is a good thing. I think correspondingly, scholars should take seriously what the judges are trying to do. They have a very hard job, and I think we at our best can try to figure out what they're trying to do and then respectfully tell them you know, where we think they've got it right, where we think they've got it wrong, how to connect the dots. And that's because you know, we academics have life tenure as well, and we are supposed to develop um, expertise in certain areas, even though I haven't even yet got to the part where I actually finally meet Justice O'Connor and and work with her on various reform projects and civic education projects in connection with the National Constitution Center and other things. So I, you know, I haven't met her in any of the things that we're talking about now, but she's in my head and I'm tickled sometimes that apparently, indirectly, I'm sometimes in her head because Stephen Breyer is giving her a copy of Bakke's Fate, and I think she's read it when she's writing Gruder. And law clerks are you know, telling her all about the Federalist 28 and 51 and how this fits with her vision of federalism. So scholars and academics have to work together. And yes, Bush versus Gore was a rushed case in which the scholars weren't able to weigh in with expert opinions. And when we did, Andy, finally, in 2020, Brett Kavanaugh, moved away from positions that he had articulated in the shadow docket 
in the 2020 election, and good for him. And he went all the way from saying pro-ISL things early in 2020 to joining an anti-ISL opinion by the Chief Justice in Moore versus Harper. Really well done, Justice Kavanaugh. We don't know why you did it, but if you you know changed your mind for reasons having to do with scholars who may have persuaded you, wow. We've gone through most of the cases that she's most known for, but she, she did have a role to play on a number of, of cases having to do with religion. Um, so what was her attitude jurisprudentially towards the um, you know, kind of separation cases and things like that? She's moving away from separation toward an idea of neutrality or equality, but not quite all the way. She's doing it in a gradualistic way. She's not repudiating openly the presidential framework, this so-called lemon test, but she's moving in the direction, for example, of, of upholding the permissibility of vouchers, which treat religion equally. You get a voucher if and only if, in, in a religious school, you get a voucher if and only if the non-religious private school across the street gets the same voucher. Now, that's the clean rule. It's just equal. She never quite commits herself to that. She says, well, there's this additional factor in that one, and it's not that much money. And, and so in cases like Mitchell versus Helms and Zellman, Harris, I'm not going to give you all the details of these cases, um, Akil on C-SPAN just says, gee, you know, if it's equal, um, if it's neutral, end of story. And neutrality is not only permissible, uh, under the Establishment Clause, it's kind of required under the Free Exercise Clause. That's where the court now is in cases like Carson, that not only is treating religion equally, perfectly permissible under the Establishment Clause, treating religion equally is kind of required under Free Exercise. O'Connor never quite made it that far, but she did help transition the court away from a strict separationist idea toward an equality idea. Her, her theme was in part, there, there shouldn't be favored religions and disfavored religions. The government shouldn't be seen as endorsing one religion over another, creating religious insiders and religious outsiders. And broadly understood, I think that's a, a nice way of thinking about the religion clauses. But because she was a little bit more of a fact-intensive person, a little bit more cautious, a little bit more of a balancer, and not as inclined to just tossed aside all sorts of earlier precedents willy-nilly, she was a slightly lagging indicator in the jurisprudence here. The court has gone a little bit past where she took it. One of her notable cases there, she wrote a concurring opinion in the McCreary case, uh, the, uh, which had to do with the display of the Ten Commandments by, in, a, in a government setting. Um, and would you say that's kind of in the middle of her of her transition, of her journey? Yeah. The press tends to focus a lot on these religious display cases, creches, and um, whether there are reindeer accompanying the, the baby Jesus and, and stuff like that, Se secular symbols, you know, two, two reindeer offsets a baby Jesus or something and makes it secular. So the press is more interested in that. I'm a little bit more interested conceptually in cases like vouchers and just seeing whether pure, strict, formal neutrality suffices and indeed is required. And that's where the court is now. O'Connor never quite said that um, with Christmas. And speaking of journeys that she undertook, um, she was involved in a number of the same-sex cases 
um, Bowers versus Hardwick and Lawrence versus Texas, um, even though she didn't write those opinions. And how would you describe her journey there? You could say, as the country moved more to the left on gay rights, so did she, that she was a barometer. I think Bowers versus Hardwick was a disgrace. Uh, Bowers allowed government to punish people um, simply for same-sex conduct, oral sex, in fact, as well as anal sex in Bowers versus Hardwick. Oral sex is, according to all sorts of studies, engaged in by the vast majority of the heterosexual population. And if they can engage in oral sex, why can't same-sex couples do the same thing? That's sex discrimination, actually. If Patrick can engage in a certain action with Jane, why can't Patricia do that? So I think she was ultimately, she, she missed the boat in Bowers versus Hardwick. Happily, she corrected that. She jumped onto the boat in Lawrence versus Texas and actually mentioned equality and not just substantive due process as the basis for her vote. She's the only justice that was in both the Bowers majority and the Lawrence majority. I'm not sure she quite said Bowers, her vote in Bowers was wrong. It's, it's hard for justices to say that they were wrong, but she moved in the right direction and God bless her for that. Okay. So a couple more categories of cases. There's a, a variety of cases and uh, that are sort of, I guess, w one example would be the case of Teague versus Lane. Maybe you can tell us about these cases. Very technical case um, about habeas corpus, but just in a nutshell, she's a former state court judge. State courts deal with criminal cases far more than federal courts. 95% of criminal law is actually state law. It is awkward when you've had a trial in a state court for a criminal case, there's been a conviction, it's gone up to the intermediate state court, the court on which she once sat in Arizona, it's gone up to the um, state Supreme Court, the Supreme Court has denied certiorari. It's, it's awkward for, let's say three years later, one federal district judge across the street to overturn in effect seven or, or nine state Supreme Court justices, say there was an error and I, federal district judge, uh, sitting in habeas corpus, order a new trial. And that's awkward. It's one judge overruling eight. It's years after the fact. It may not be easy for the states to retry the case because the evidence has dissipated. Some of the witnesses may have moved or may have died. Gee, if you had told the state immediately that there was a mistake on direct appeal to the United States Supreme Court, they could have retried the case immediately. But three years later, very different, uh, difficult. So habeas has been a sore spot in American modern American jurisprudence when it's being used to collaterally attack convictions in state courts. Justice O'Connor helped lead the charge to cut back on federal habeas. Federal habeas was really a product of the, the Warren Court. They wanted to protect the rights of criminal defendants, and so they, they used habeas to increase the flow of possible cases to the United States Supreme Court so that they could, could hear more issues and, and move the needle in criminal justice cases in favor of defendants. But we're not in the Warren Court anymore, and today's court doesn't believe that. In the name of federalism, in part, it doesn't believe that. And finality, Justice O'Connor is part of that. Congress is part of that. They passed a statute called EDPA, the Anti-Terrorism and Efficiency and Death Penalty Act. So Teague 
basically is one of the many ways in which habeas has been cut back. It suggests this O'Connor opinion is a technical opinion saying in habeas corpus three years later, we're not going to let you argue for any new constitutional propositions. Maybe on direct appeal, you can you can argue that the case law should be extended in this way or that way in, fa- in your favor as a criminal defendant, but we're not going to let you do that in habeas corpus. You have to show in habeas corpus that the state court violated the rules that were already very, very clearly established when the trial took place. I mean, it's interesting because just as a general proposition earlier, you were talking about um, these federalism ideas that you have where state states and I guess state courts in part, um, can act as a buffer against or a backstop against federal misconduct or federal deprivation of rights. Here, habeas is being used to protect at the federal level against state misuse of, of rights or abuse of rights. And so that's a protection that's somewhat symmetrical. And here she's Whereas she's arguably expanding it in the New York versus United States in one direction, she's cutting it back when it works in the other direction here. So, I mean, that doesn't mean that it's wrong or inconsistent because one could be going too far and the other one not, but it it is in the opposite direction, nevertheless. Brilliant, Andy. Just so in enough sovereignty and federalism, I say I like states protecting me against the federal government, but I also like the federal government protecting me against states with things like the 14th Amendment and things like 1983. This is why I don't like state sovereign immunity. She did. I don't like immunity, qualified immunity for various government officials. She did. So her vision and mine weren't quite completely aligned. You know, she read part of the sovereignty and federalism and liked it. And, and maybe she disagreed with other parts of it. But yes, in Akil's world, there would be much more robust federal protection of various rights against states. I do think in the habeas corpus domain, the Warren Court did go too far in certain respects because the the state is entitled to one fair trial and it's hard to have a fair trial five, eight, 10 years later. So if there's a problem, the Supreme Court should identify it on direct appeal and then there should be an immediate retrial. That's obviously the better way to go. Of course, in another episode, we talked about, you know, difficulty of getting to the Supreme Court, things like uh, um, younger abstention, which makes it hard to get to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court doesn't take that many cases. So mm-hmm. so habeas has an important role to play, I think. Um, but and, and the fact that it's years later, well, if it's the state's fault that it's years later, um, then too bad, you know, in, in, yeah. in a way. Yeah. Okay. So all, all good points, Andy. Okay, well, we're wrapping up this discussion of, of Justice O'Connor's jurisprudence, and um, I think, you know, in, in our consideration of her, and particularly as it relates to you, and we haven't talked about your personal relationship with her, which some of it, I guess, postdates her time on the court, um, perhaps, and there was an article, we're not going get, to get into it too much right now, but uh, Jesse Wegman, our friend in the New York Times, um, had an article about how after she left the bench, it became very important to Justice O'Connor to talk about uh, the limits of judicial decor, you know, uh, uh, judicial discussion of of uh, various issues and how judges have to be careful, you know, what they say, you know, in public and things like that. Um, and some of this goes back to an opinion that she was involved with when she was on the bench that allowed uh, elected judges to be able to campaign or to, to say how they 
how they uh, feel about various issues. Anyway, this all goes into the question of her post-bench uh, life. And why don't you talk a little bit about your personal relationship with Justice O'Connor, either while she was on the bench or after. We mentioned Dr. Kissinger's death. We, of course, are talking about Justice O'Connor's passing. Rosalind Carter passed away. Um, and uh, we think about uh, Jimmy Carter, who was a great ex-president by acclamation. And Justice O'Connor was a great ex-justice. And I didn't meet her, I think, while she was on the bench. I got to know her when she left because she still had a lot of life force, a lot of energy, and she wanted to, she wanted to use it uh, for the general betterment. She helps the National Constitution Center. And I think I first meet her, yes, I think she's technically still on the court. Even after she's off the court, she's helping the National Constitution Center in various ways. And I helped co-found um, that entity along with uh, the great Gordon Wood. She believes in civic education, and I interact with her in, in various ways in connection with the civic education initiatives, also involving actually Bill Gates Sr. and my friend, the great Eric Liu out in Seattle. So she believes in civic education initiatives. She believes in connectedly the National Constitution Center. She also thinks elected judiciaries are actually a bad ideas, a partisan elected judiciary. She herself was a state judge. How do all these things connect up? Um, uh, we're talking, for example, about term limits. And we say, oh, after, for justices, and we've t- had many past episodes, we say, well, after you, you serve your time on the front bench, you can still do lots of things. You, you, you can be involved in all sorts of judicial activity to Im- improve the judiciary. And you can ride circuit, yes, but you can also be involved in public relations, judicial education, and judicial reform. And she was involved in all of those things. And her big theme was that, to repeat, um, elected judiciaries aren't so good. She writes an opinion as a concurring opinion case saying, if you're going to have an elective judiciary, then you have to be allowed to make campaign statements. And we've talked about that in previous episodes involving Justice Protosewitz in, in Wisconsin, for example. And, and she says, in this concurrence, maybe you shouldn't have state elections for judges at all. But if you do, people have to be able to say things in the elections. And and this reminds me, you know, when your experience with the Yale Corporation, if you're going to have people running for the Yale Corporation, they kind of be allowed to say what they believe about Yale policies. And this is why you see in Citizens United, if we're going to have elections, people get to run ads saying, vote for Lipka, vote against Lipka. And they get to run ads even if they're corporations. And even if it's within 60 days of election, oh my God, uh, what a concept to talk about the candidates shortly before we're actually electing them. But the big picture is even after you've completed your service, she chooses to step down at a time when she still has a lot of life force. And she does it in part, you know, for family reasons, because she's always caring about other people, you know, her spouse, her kids, her clerks. Um, I get to know her when she's an ex-justice and she's involved, she's using all her life force for good projects, civic education and judicial independence. I think that's how she would want to be remembered in her post-Supreme Court years. She was a towering figure. I didn't know her well, but I hope in this episode, Andy, we've done her justice. So speaking of doing her justice, um, you know, first matter, George Washington, Jackie Robinson, it wasn't just that he was the first, but that he did it well. That mattered. 
Uh, it wasn't just that George Washington was the first, but that he did it well. That mattered. Sandra Day O'Connor was the first. Okay, that was important. In your assessment, did she do it well? Was she a good choice? Was she a pioneer in more in more than name? Yes. Okay. There you have it. Okay, well, next week we'll be back. We will have Moore versus United States oral argument under our belt. Whether or not we discuss it that week or the week after will remains to be seen. Uh, we've got more with uh, the uh, eminent Bowden Paulson coming up. Uh, we've got uh, an episode with some more clips coming up. Great stuff. And then, before I know, you know it, it'll be our third anniversary. January 6th, in fact, is our <laughs> the anniversary of America's Constitution. I think something else happened on that day. Um, and uh, so stay with us, audience. And we're grateful to you, as always. And goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.